0: Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Halibut people and their world. I'm Glenn Wheeler. The prehistory of the Humber River Basin and Bay of Islands region extends back several millennia. Traces of Aboriginal habitation began during the retreat of the Last Ice Age, with the arrival of the Maritime Archaic Indians at least 3,000 years ago. Other groups, like the grosswater paleo-eskimo, Beothik and Mi'kmaq, later entered into the region. After 1500, the coastline was visited by Breton, Portuguese, and Basque fishers. Visitors included Jacques Carchet in 1534, who was blown during a gale into the Bay of Islands from Professor Raynor Baer's paper, Reconstructing Heritage and Cultural Identity. Our guest on Mi'kmaq Matters this week is Justin Brake. Justin Brake is a Halibu member currently living in Benwas Cove. He is the editor and publisher of the Independent.ca, which has carried some of the best coverage of Halibu Matters. But last week, instead of being a reporter of the news... Justin became the news when he was charged by the RCMP for being present as a journalist and reporting on actions last fall by indigenous people in Labrador. Inu and Inuit people in the big land are fighting against methylmercury poisoning of their land and water by flooding at the Muskrat Falls hydro dam. The charges against Justin Bray carry a penalty of up to 10 years in jail. The legal action against a journalist for doing his job has sparked fierce opposition from national and international journalist organizations, including the Canadian Association of Journalists and Reporters Without Borders. Quoting from their statement, this is a serious threat to press freedom. This is a well known tactic to prevent coverage by denying access to journalists. The RCMP has a long history of brutality towards Indigenous protesters, which is one reason it is critically important to have a journalist there as an observer. A legal defense fund has been started. You can contribute at defendtheindy.com. I talked to Justin Brake about his coverage of the Muskrat Falls action, covering the Halibut and parts of the Halibut story yet to be told. So Justin, can you tell us uh, how you found out last
1: week about these charges, charges for mischief failing to obey a court order punishable by up to 10 years from prison?
2: I found out uh, when somebody pointed out to me that a tweet from the RCMP uh, uh, linking to its press release announcing the charges included my community of Benoit's Cove uh, uh, among the list of communities where the people being charged live, and I know that, uh, well, as far as I know, there were no other uh, individuals in Labrador uh, actively protesting the Muskrat Falls project that were from my same community. So I, I had a pretty good hunch that it was me. Um, but it wasn't until it, it wasn't until the next day that I was uh, actually called by the RCMP because they wanted to serve me the uh, the court summons paper.
1: And did they, uh, did they come to the school to do that?
2: No, they didn't actually know where I lived. So I said, I'll come to you.
1: <laughs> I see. Uh, they didn't know how to find
2: me. They, they, they only had my uh, mailing address, not my civic address. So I figured if they wanted to find me, they could. But I was in Cornerbrook, So I just went to the police station to pick up uh, the summons, which uh, revealed uh, to me that I was uh, being charged with uh, two criminal offenses uh, for the journalism I did in Labrador.
1: Now, take us back to last October when you were covering those protests uh, against Muskrat Falls by Indigenous and non-Indigenous Labradorians, land protectors, uh, concerned about methylmercury contamination of land and water. The land protectors uh, broke a padlock, walked through the gate, and were on the Muskrat Falls site, You followed. The other journalists did not, and um, and you did. Why did you Why did you follow the land protectors onto the property, Nelcor property?
2: Yeah. Okay. So for adequate context here, I need to go back a little bit before that moment that the gate, uh, the lock on that gate was cut. I arrived in Labrador in September uh, to do um, one story or a two-part feature story just about how the projected impacts of the uh, of muskrat falls were going to uh, affect communities living downstream. Because at that point, there had been a peer-reviewed scientific study led by researchers out of Harvard University and Memorial University released um, uh, and recommending to the government. Or at first, it told the it explained to to the Nalcor and to the government and to the public. What would happen if the reservoir was flooded? If the plans to to flood Muskrat Falls went ahead uh, as planned at that time, and that would have exposed uh, Inuit because the study was done on Inuit populations, but it would have exposed anybody, uh, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, who harvests uh, food from Lake Melville's fish, seals, seabirds uh, to unsafe levels of methylmercury. Um, of course, you know we know that that can be passed on uh methylmercury can be it can have uh, neurological uh, uh, developmental problems uh, in children uh it can also affect adults and it can be passed on through mothers through their breast milk to their infants this is a very serious issue we've already seen in other parts of canada how uh, uh local indigenous populations have been affected by methylmercury so people in labrador um, mostly indigenous people have been protesting Musgrave falls for a number of years and there have been protests and there have been arrests in the, in in the past in the past 5 years so these this round of protests um, became more urgent when Nalcor announced at the end of September or maybe it was October 1st around there that on October 15th or soon thereafter they would begin the first phase of flooding of the reservoir and the, and all of the concerns of uh locals, including indigenous people and including the but uh government, the, the government representing the Inuit of northern Labrador, uh all the concerns about methylmercury and about the North Spur and other issues um uh with Muskrat Falls had you know fallen on deaf ears to the to the to the locals, that's what they had felt. The problems weren't being adequately addressed. So The protests grew and grew and grew through the the, uh, through early October and in mid October, I believe it was around the 16th or so. The day after flooding could have begun, a blockade was formed uh, and stopping the flow of traffic into and out of the site. They let people out of the site, workers out, but they didn't let traffic in. The RCMP moved in and arrested people. Uh, I was there to document that. I was the only journalist present to document that. It was in the wee hours of the morning before the sun came up. And that footage, uh, which went national on, uh, some, on some national media outlets, uh, on television and on the internet, um, that prompted more outrage among Labradorians because they saw their own people, their own family members and relatives being criminalized for trying to protect their food. And uh, their water and their way of life. So on October 22nd, uh, there was a big protest planned outside the main gate where the blockade had been broken up but reinstated. Uh, more people from Shezheji, from the Innu First Nation, and came out and joined the protests. And at that point, I had elders telling me they had never seen anything like this in their lifetimes and they never thought it was possible. Uh, Innu and Inuit elders both told me that. Nobody had ever seen the Innu, the Inuit, and settler Labradorians all standing together, side by side, fighting together for a common cause. Uh, so when that lock was uh, broken off the gate and I saw Inu, Inuit and settler Labradorians going into the site, I knew that this was an important historical moment. It was a major news story. And uh, myself and one other journalist uh, uh, went through the gate. I won't name the other journalist. Um, But if you look at the news, the coverage from back then, you'll see that I was not the only journalist to go through the gate, but I was the only one to follow people as they went up the dirt road. Nobody knew where this story was going, even the people who were uh, uh, the 50 or 60 people who went through the gate and were going up the road. Their intention was to go to the actual site, which was 20 kilometers down this dirt road and uh, try to stop the flooding. Uh, They made it about halfway. There were several roadblocks and they saw the workers' camp and, uh, you know, at this point there's snow on the ground. It's cold, right? They went inside the workers' camp and I think the decision to occupy, it only happened once they were in there already. Some people left, but a lot of them stayed. So that's the context for that day. I knew it was a major story and uh, it had to be pursued. It had to be told.
1: And you were you were with the land protectors for a number of days. Was it uh, four days uh, you were with them?
2: Yeah, they were there for a total of four days, and I guess I was there for three days.
1: And you left uh, before they did. And what did you what did you leave?
2: I left because I was uh, named on an injunction that was granted by the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador to the to Nalcor. Um, who had named, identified and named as many people that that were a part of the occupation uh, as they could. And uh, uh, the injunction basically compelled authorities to arrest those people and all others, uh, persons unknown, um, if they did not leave the site. Uh, They named me as well. Uh, They did not inform the Supreme Court uh, judge that I was a working journalist. And as such, I faced arrest as well for for being present to to do that journalism. And at that point, the, the live broadcasts that I was uh, streaming on Facebook were you know were reaching tens of thousands of people around Canada, indeed you know outside of Canada and other parts of the world. And uh, the coverage had made Muskrat Falls a major national story at that time. Um, so it, unfortunately, I was. Basically, uh, you know, hauled off the job as a journalist by uh, being threatened with arrests if I stayed and continued to to cover the story from the inside. So I chose to leave.
1: And when you were in there, were you? Do you think you were conducting yourself as a as a journalist? Because I guess what the authorities are saying, is they're not distinguishing between you as a journalist and the and the the work that the land protectors were doing. So what was your what was your self-identity during the days you were, uh, you were present at the occupation? Uh,
2: my identity all along uh, has been as a journalist, and I don't think there is actually any dispute over that. I mean, the RCMP, I was communicating with the RCMP from the inside. They knew I was a journalist in the month leading up to that, that I had been on the ground in Labrador covering the protests. I had always identified myself as a journalist, wore my press badge outside my jacket or my vest, Um, You know, I've been uh, the editor of The Independent for going on five years now. I'm well known to NALCOR. I've interviewed them, maintained regular communication with them over the last number of years. Everybody knew I was a journalist. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, the the decision has been made to to criminalize me, to charge me with criminal offenses. uh, And in NALCOR's case, to have me... Uh, named on an injunction that uh, meant I, that I would face a civil contempt charge in that case as well.
1: Who issued the press pass?
2: Oh, the press. The press pass is a, a press badge. Is something that all that journalists make for themselves. It doesn't give them. It doesn't give the press pass. Doesn't give anybody any special privileges. It just identifies you as a journalist in case you know when you're especially when you're covering protests where there's a police presence you want the police to know that you're there not as a protester but as uh as a journalist so that's why I I chose to uh to uh, to make that and uh, wear it and I you know in fact had been wearing it for a month uh, throughout all of the other protests where there was an RCMP presence as well
1: now many of our listeners will be familiar with uh with your Halibur, uh coverage you uh wrote the I think it's hard to say that the definitive story on the Big first nation assembly forum, uh, on last month. And, um, and just in passing, we can mention that uh, if our listeners haven't done so, they can check out your investigative story, MP Goody Hutchings, uh, and her involvement, um, in a camp, uh, she owned in Eagle river on, um, on Inuit land in Labrador, and um, and the protests against that uh, camp, um, ricochet media. They can Google that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, two two major Indigenous stories: the the, the Muskrat Falls protests, and now the the Halibut story. Um, may be similar in the fact that they don't get covered uh, enough or um, with the completeness. What's uh, what, what's it like covering the Halibut story uh, compared to the Muskrat Falls story? I suppose, leaving aside the 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 legal challenges, the Halibut story might be more difficult because the the uh, the state, uh, if we can call it that, is farther away, uh, more remote. So it's not um, is a bit uh, more intangible, I suppose, as a as a story.
2: Yeah, there's definitely with uh with the halibut story and the, the fallout from the enrollment process um you know there there's not uh, an immediate physical tangible uh um uh, threat and uh, I think I need to need to uh, qualify that a little bit more. I mean, with Muskrat Falls it, there was a a deadline, there was going to be a physical action happening, the flooding of the reservoir which would have produced methylmercury almost immediately. And which would have then contaminated the traditional food supply. It's not uh, as cut and dry with with the halibut story. Um, the halibut story has been covered uh, quite extensively by local media, and, and uh, they've done a fair, a fair job, uh, a pretty good job of of uh, consistently reporting on it. But it's also a part of a bigger story, a uh, national story in Canada, and a global story. There is uh, in Canada and in other countries around the world, where Indigenous people and their lands have been colonized. There's, uh, you know, there is a major story about Indigenous identity right now, uh, and it's ongoing and it's not resolved. Um, so the determination of what it means to be Mi'kmaq in the eyes of the Canadian government and the FNI. Uh, Those those criteria that were set out in the uh, agreement in principle, and then addressed in the supplemental agreement in terms of how the enrollment committee had to evaluate those criteria. Uh, You know, the Mi'kmaq Grand Council in Nova Scotia is kind of looking at this and saying, you know, very in my mind, very rightly concerned because what you have is a situation where. Uh, the federal government and one or maybe a few people on the board of the Federation of Newfoundland Indians are determining uh who is Mi'kmaq and who is not and, and you know without any consultation with the rest of the Mi'kmaq nation and uh, of course we know now that the uh, now that people have received their letters uh, and are in the process of appealing uh, we know it was a deeply flawed process uh but you know it, we're we're in a situation now where uh where tens of thousands of people are trying to figure out how to appeal it you know they've uh you know basically accepted that this that these criteria for defining who's Mi'kmaq and who's indigenous and who should be a status indian um we've accepted it by participating in the process now that we've see that it, it it actually is a false um Definition and a false process. I think we need to be asking, as this uh, as this battle continues and fight for for people's rights, uh, is what does it mean to be Mi'kmaq? You know, the Mi'kmaq Rights Initiative in Nova Scotia, working with the Grand Council, has, in response to the formation of the Halibut Band and this these criteria set out, launched their own investigation. They've started to um, they've started to consult with their members and, and Mi'kmaq communities on the mainland. Uh, to try to actually figure out what it means to be Mi'kmaq in terms of a working definition, and uh, you know, because so many of us in Western Newfoundland, on the island, and now scattered out across Canada and elsewhere, actually do have Indigenous ancestry, um, it's 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 not so cut and dry as uh, if you have Indigenous ancestry, you are automatically Indigenous. If that was the case, there would be a lot more in Canada and it would it could potentially have uh, devastating consequences on indigenous uh nations in in Canada if if uh, the only requirement was uh was blood or dna you know um so i I've, I've heard a lot of people talking about their birthright because they have an indigenous ancestor they have a right to claim indigenous ancestry but i don't think we're talking to, you know asking that much uh you know what that what it um, you know, what it means to uh, to be Mi'kmaq and uh, you know, it, we, we there's a lot of assumptions happening but there's not a deeper sort of inquiry um with uh, with deeper questions into what it means. And I'm not I'm not taking the position. I mean I have I don't have it figured out, right? I have I'm of Mi'kmaq ancestry of Mi'kmaq descent uh, as well and uh and uh, this is a deeply personal journey for me and I imagine it is for the 100,000 100, plus other individuals who are going through it. But Um, You know, I think the question, uh, I think things got complicated when Canada said, okay, we're forming this band, uh, who's Mi'kmaq and who's not here? You know, if you're Mi'kmaq, here's the criteria. Uh, It forced tens of thousands of us who were, you know, in the midst of our personal journeys to to figure out what it means to be Mi'kmaq to say by a deadline, yes or no. And there's consequences to not meeting that deadline. If you don't meet the deadline and you're granted status later, you may not be able to pass it on to your children. Uh, So Canada has really uh, certainly messed up big time here. And this whole uh, situation and the narrative that's unfolding does not uh, go hand in hand with uh, truth and reconciliation, which they've promised to the Mi'kmaq and to all indigenous people in Canada.
1: So the enrollment uh, enrollment story uh, will... I guess it has a finite end because by by next year we'll we'll have a a a list an official list, but the identity the search for identity may continue after that date.
2: Well, certainly. Well, I don't. I personally haven't have been able to envision a scenario a resolution that the uh, the government and the and Halibur and S and the SNI could could uh, you know bring about in any short amount of time where you would have Everybody satisfied um, uh, by the outcome, you know, uh, determining what indigenous identity means to every different nation, uh, what nationhood means, citizenship, uh, what the difference between a citizen and a beneficiary is. These are things that all have to be worked out, and uh, I don't see them really being worked out, but we are in a bit of a state of shock right now. Uh, in terms of uh, you know everybody got their letters all at the same time and there's a lot of uh, confusion and anger and frustration and families divided so it's it's you know it's, it's maybe it's 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 maybe to be expected that we wouldn't be having this deeper conversation about identity at this particular moment but as uncomfortable as that conversation might be it has to begin because it, it cannot the 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 overall issue cannot be resolved until there is of a consensus about well wait what does it mean to be Mi'kmaq if these criteria that Canada and the FNI have determined are not right then what does it mean and I think we really need to try to open up dialogue respectful dialogue a dialogue um, uh, you know that embodies the seven sacred teachings with our brothers and sisters and cousins on the mainland and uh, and have this conversation together
0: Justin Brake, Halibu member and editor and publisher of the Independent.ca. Support independent journalism, press freedom, and Justin Brake. Contribute to the Legal Defense Fund at defendtheindy.com. And that's it for the show this week. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Thanks also to Halibu artist Marcus Goss for permission to use celebration time follow us on Twitter at Mi'kma Matters. That's M-I-Q-M-A-Q-Matters. Check us out online, migma mattersblogspotca Listen on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. This is Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.